Polyphonic Press, the podcast where two music fans pick a classic album completely at random and analyse it track by track. Using the patented random album generator, they are given an album to review from a curated list of over 1,000 classic releases spanning multiple genres. And now onto the show. Here are your hosts, Jeremy Boyd and John Van Dyke. Uh, hey, welcome to Polyphonic Press. I'm Jeremy Boyd. And I'm John Van Dyke. And uh, we're going to try something a little different this week. We're going to actually just uh, go through the each side of the album. Instead of going track by track, we're actually going to be uh, looking at the one side of the album. We'll discuss it. And then we're going to uh, listen to the second side of the album and then discuss that and then sort of talk about the album as a whole. Just so we're not, you know, going track by track and... Uh, Repeating ourselves. Repeating ourselves, exactly. Uh, so, we have the random album generator in front of us. So, uh, let's click the button. The R-A-G. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's click the button and see what album we're going to be listening to this week. And the album we're going to listen to is Marty Robbins' Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs. Okay, interesting. Um, Marty Robbins, I think that's a country guy. This is what it says on allmusic.com. It says, uh, the single most influential album of Western songs in post-World War II American music, gunfighter ballads and trail songs touched a whole range of unexpected bases in its own time and has endured extraordinarily well across the ensuing four decades. Uh, ensuing four de- decades. The longevity of the album's appeal is a result of Marty Robbins' love of the repertory and at hand and the mix of his youthful dynamism and uh, prodigious talent that he brought to the recordings and the use of the best music production techniques of the era. Add to that the presence uh, of a pair of killer original songs that were ready-made singles, El Paso and Big Iron, and a third, The Master's Call, uh, that was startlingly personal and the result of a well-nigh uh, well irresistible. Oh, and the results are well-nigh irresistible. Sorry. Uh, the range of material on this album is extraordinary, from, the, from love songs to spirituals, songs so old they have no known author, and originals by the singer, all of which seamlessly fit together. Robin's subject is mostly of uh, mostly the West of myth and movie, which benefits from his ability as a storyteller. Big Iron or El Paso may tell tales heard or seen a hundred times on screen, but he makes listeners feel like this is the first time they're hearing them. Complete with uh, excitement and anticipation of a poet in the middle of a spellbinding recital. The guitar is played by Robbins, uh, Grady Martin, and Jack Pruitt, and Bob Moore's upright bass all have a crisp sound, and the Glasser Brothers' understated vocals, vocal accompany, uh, accompaniment embellishes the singing in key spots without, introducing on the sp- uh, without intruding on the spell cast by Robbins' singing. Gunfighter, Ballads, and Trail Songs has been reissued several times on CD, paired with uh, it's follow-up, more gunfighter ballads and trail songs as part of Bear Family Records under uh, Western Skies Box and in an expanded edition in 1999. Uh, written for the 
the uh, bonus track. It just goes on about the different uh, releases. Okay, so. What, what year did this come out? Uh, 1959. Marty Robbins? Yeah. Oh, interesting. You said Grady Martin was on the guitar player? Uh, was the guitar player on here? Yeah. Cool. He's one of the guys who has uh, one of those. He had a Paul Bigsby made guitar. Oh, yeah. You know, those weird scrolly looking things? Yeah. They're cool. And his has, has his name emblazoned on it somewhere. Cool. So, wonder if that's the guitar he's using. Okay, so here we go. Here is uh, side one, starting with Big Iron. Okay. Okay, ending side one with Utah Carol. Nice, cheerful stuff. Yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> um, yeah, very dark. But the, you, that's the weird thing about um, this is the music is very cheerful. The lyrics aren't. They're very dark, um, especially when uh, was it? They're hanging me tonight talking about killing his lover you know the guy that she's cheating with yeah very uh (laughs) very dark lyrics sung in a um in a cheerful way kind of and i always like that counterpoint of like having like sort of happy music or happy melody i don't know how cheerful the singing it was there was a sort of mournfulness to it but the music just sounds a little bit i don't know it's it's got a little bit of both to it. It's not, you know, dark and doomy like a lot of stuff you might hear today, but maybe that was maybe as dark and gloomy as you would hear about in 1959, something like that. So, except maybe the blues. Except me, yeah, exactly. That's the that's the thing I, I always thought, like, country and blues really have a lot in common that way, you know? And it's it's weird that they're sort of seen as separate, but they're not that different from each other. About this album in particular, I I was thinking it was uh, it's rather well mixed. It's um, it is on on that last uh, song that I was uh, I was noticing that um, obviously his vocals are you know really high in the mix, but. Um, the mandolin was doing some really interesting, complicated stuff underneath that, just to sort of accompany the vocals, not get in the way of it. And it is busy underneath. It's very hard to do. But um, but to, to complement the vocals, and uh, I was really impressed with that. Yeah, I think it was the first track I was thinking that the guitar, the lead guitar, when it came in, could have been a little higher in the mix. Um. But overall, I mean, everything was very thought out, and and, and again, it was about the stories. It's about um, you know telling the stories of of woe and murder and shooting people in the streets and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and you know, I think the other thing too that you have to remember is we can talk about. Well, I wish this was higher in the mix, and it just you know think about the technology that they had at the time and the recording techniques it, it just you know that's is easy to hear that now it was probably recorded live off the floor i mean i doubt i doubt it was um you know laid down track by track 
Yeah, pro- probably at least at least the instruments were live, and they might have overdubbed them. Yeah, they might have overdubbed the vocal, but but quite often even that was done at the same time with maybe a vo- the vocalist in a separate room um, to get a clear vocal. But yeah, for sure, all the musicianship was probably in one room, and uh, so um, trying to get bring up something in a, in a certain mix when it was probably only recorded on a two. At most four track, probably only a two track machine, and sometimes only one track. <laughs> that's yeah. That, I mean, that's it's crazy to think of how far it's come. But yeah, you know, and I think Buddy Holly was one of the first people that you know got into overdubbing and you know more than a few tracks. Could be. I don't know that much about his recording. Uh, well, it was in the movie about him, so I don't. <laughs> I don't know how how true that is, but. I think I saw the movie about him a long time ago, so I haven't seen it recently or anything. Yeah, no, it's been a while since I've seen it too. Anyway, we've got uh, the next side to get to, so the um, we will continue on. And the side two starts off with uh, strawberry, the strawberry roan. So okay. Okay, and that concludes the album with The Little Green Valley. I I don't know about you, but I feel like I just watched a movie. Oh yeah. Yeah, this the the vis- he's very descriptive his songs. And the, like it's very visual. Not all of them are him, but no, of course not, but the the songs that he's chosen, chosen and and the ones that he's written. Yeah, I know, they're very it's uh they're very cinematic. Yeah. Yeah. Picture exactly what he's singing about. It's uh it doesn't leave a lot to the imagination, but that's that's okay. There are, it's about storytelling. Now I've I've heard Cool Water in El Paso before. I don't think I've ever heard Cool Water, but definitely El Paso. I mean that's that's kind of a standard, you know, country song that uh, kind of everybody knows, you know. Yeah, I mean this this album is uh really consistent. Um I mean in terms of production and the the sonic quality of it. I mean all the songs I don't mean this in the bad way, but all the songs sound the same. I don't mean that they the all the songs go the same. I mean Yeah, the songs the, aren't aren't written the same or anything like that, but you could, it's definitely got the uh it sounds like him, it sounds like his band. Yes, exactly. And um they play really well together. I mean, they're just, uh, and that's the thing that I always think about, like all these ses- session musicians. And I wonder if, I don't know if there's a country equivalent, but, uh, there was, uh, what are they called? Um, all those players that played on all those sixties hits. Oh, like, um, uh, the, uh, they call, uh, the wrecking crew. There's the wrecking crew. And, um, Oh yeah. There's also the funk brothers on Motown. um, was it Muscle Shoals had their favorite group of people. Um, but yeah, I think uh, a lot of these um, session players, I mean, there was definitely a similar thing going on in country at the time too. Um, I don't think they gave themselves a name necessarily. They were the session musicians. So it didn't become until they just kind of decided to be a band. And But even then, um, 
like things like people like the Wrecking Crew, they've only really been properly recognized in more recent years. They were very behind the scenes, like most session musicians were. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing is a lot of people, well, they, they, their names just weren't on the albums and they, they, people just assumed that the bands were the ones that were playing on the album. And that was kind of like the trick. Um, when it comes to like the Beach Boys, and a lot of that is Brian Wilson and the Wrecking Crew. <laughs> Some of these albums should be that. Meanwhile, the the other brothers are off touring. They're off touring, and Brian, you know, with a, his anxiety, decided to stay home and record an, uh, a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the I guess these guys are kind of. Uh, I don't know if these are. This is his band, or if this is like you know, his, um, or if these are like session players that just, you know, hang out at the studio. Like, I don't know. Um, they could have at least been handpicked by him to be on the record or he called them up and says, Hey, uh, um, Grady, do you want to play on this record that I'm doing? Um, I, I need someone to, you know, play a mean acoustic guitar. I'm, I'm doing a whole bunch of like classic, um, cowboy songs and I've got a few of my own, you know, Come by to the studio, and who knows? Yeah. Who? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, and I, like I don't know who might have been if this is his touring band or you know I don't think so though. But I mean, um, I really like this album. I um, I uh, I think my favorite song might be "Running Gun" or the opener, uh, "Big Iron." I think those two are probably my favorites on the album. Those are the two that stand out to me. I also liked the Master's Call, even though it was a, a religious sort of um, spiritual. I I like the um, I just like the way that song sounded. I like the way it, the the sort of it, a little darker musically. I I thought I like that. Yeah, it's a little bit hard to pick a favorite when so many of them are very. Uh, it's similar. It's very consistent. Um, it, it definitely comes together as a cohesive album which is rare in its time unless you're like yeah because like this was back in the time when um like it was all about singles and p and that's just because people didn't really buy people were more inclined to buy singles rather than the lp because they were more expensive um so it was all about trying to you know get the singles and you know that was what it was all about. and a lot of the time um i know I don't know if it worked for every um, artist, but a lot of the time the singles weren't on the album. Like the song that was released as a single wasn't on the album. Yeah, oftentimes it was pretty common for the single to not appear on an album. It was, there was albums and then singles. And it was, I know, I think I've heard, I read a, an interview or it was in one of the books or something about the Beatles. Um, where they were talking about, they thought it was a little bit lame to put their singles on their album. It was just like, well, people already bought those and they kind of felt a little, you know, silly about it, but it started to make more sense. Like the, the, the album, the single became just a promotion tool for the album. Um, and that happened around the time the Beatles were doing things like Rubber Soul and Revolver and stuff like that. Yeah. I think I remember hearing, um, George Martin say one of his big regrets was leaving um, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane off of Sgt. Pepper. 
he thought that they should have been included in the album. They were they definitely feel very sonically, but then so does uh, I am the walrus and things like that. So I think putting out um uh magical mystery tour was almost like a side or or a, a Sgt. Pepper Part 2. It wasn't quite as good, but there was good stuff. The, yeah, that is true. But anyway, the, um, this album, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I thought it was uh, really, uh, I'm very impressed. Not something I normally listen to, but... No, it, it's a little out of my wheelhouse too, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's good. It's good to, you know, broaden your horizons and, and, and listen to the other stuff out there and, and, and know who uh, some of these uh, other masters are. Yeah. Um, in, in other uh, circles of the music industry and other time periods too. So, uh, yeah, no, I, um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I might listen to more of this kind of stuff. Yep. So anyway, yeah, I guess we'll end the podcast there. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, um, you can check us out on, uh, at polyphonicpress.com. Uh, and if you want to help out the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash polyphonic press. And you can check us out on Instagram and, uh, all whole bunch of other places. Just search for polyphonic press. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, pretty much it. Uh, I'm Jeremy Boyd. And I'm John Van Dyke. And if you didn't make it this far, well, screw you. <laughs> Pretty much. What? They'll exactly. never hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Take it easy.